Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Roll up, roll up, my name's Dan. This is where we search out all the science secrets that are lurking all around the universe. Uh, This week, thank you for finding us, by the way. Thank you for streaming or downloading, however you're listening. Thank you very much. Uh, This week, we'll have a look at another deadly dangerous thing from Australia. But kind of where else? Uh, Also, you can hear why llamas might help people uh, fight covid in the future uh, and i've got your questions this week they are on noises on breathing and all about fish and what fish do at the night time that's coming up first let's hear from one of our favorite geniuses on the show this is professor hallux professor hallux builds a body is produced by fun kids with support from the welcome trust again anatomy addicts i'm nurse nanobot and it's time to join professor hallux again in his laboratory well he called it a laboratory it's like a bomb's gone off in a test tube factory oh what a mess there are piles of papers stacks of flasks and beakers clanking in some very wobbly towers and some very smelly concoctions bubbling away pongy stuff Rainbox Professor Hallux is attempting to build his very own human body, full of all those gory but very important bits. Let's find out what he's up to today. Hi there, and welcome back to my lab. Sorry about the mess. I used to have a cleaner, but she was scared of scouring my skeletons. So my work building a body continues, and today we're adding skin. Skin is absolutely amazing stuff. As well as keeping our insides inside, it also helps keep our bodies at just the right temperature and allows us to have the sense of touch. You tell them, Nurse Nanobot, whilst I buff the body up ready for its lovely new coating. Skin is made up of three layers, each with its own important parts. The layer that you can see on your body is called the epidermis. It looks smooth and inactive. But it is very important as it keeps you waterproof and stops nasty germs getting into your body. And underneath, new cells are always forming. It takes a few weeks for new cells to rise to the top of the skin. In fact, the whole top layer of your skin is dead by the time it reaches the surface. Yuck! You lose nearly 40,000 cells every minute of the day. Scratch your arms gently with a fingernail and you'll see a trail of white. That's the dead cells coming away. Golly, this skin is tough to unfold. Carry on, Nurse Nanobot. Some of your skin cells have the job of making a substance called melanin, which gives skin its colour. The darker your skin is, the more melanin you have. Melanin helps protect your skin from the sun's rays, which is why you get more of it when you sunbathe. That's what a tan is. You can also help protect your skin when it's sunny by putting on sun cream a long sleeve shirt and a hat. Under the epidermis, the next layer is called the dermis. This layer contains nerve endings that help you sense touch, heat and pain. It also has loads of glands that produce sweat and oil and tough collagen and stretchy elastin, which make your skin soft and squishy. A network of tiny blood vessels in the dermis layer brings nutrients to the skin. You might not be able to see these blood vessels on your body, but they're easier to see on old people, so ask your mum for a look at her hands. (laughs) 
Don't tell her I said she was old. The third and final layer is the subcutaneous layer. This holds everything together and acts as a shock absorber. It also contains the fat that keeps you warm. Right. Let's put some layers of skin onto my skeleton. One of the other fabulous things that skin does is keep your body at just the right temperature. 37 degrees Celsius. Nerves in the skin sense when it's hotter or colder than this. If it's hotter, it will secrete sweat from the glands, which takes heat away as it evaporates. Also, blood vessels will widen to allow more blood to get to the surface where it can cool down. That's why we get red faces when we are hot. If you're too cold, the vessels clamp down and hairs stand up to trap in the air. Skin must be one of the cleverest parts of your body, I tell you. Horrible old anatomy fact. Plastic surgery is the name given to surgery to change or repair skin and soft tissue, like burnt skin and wonky noses. It is complicated to do, but people have had lots of practice. 2,000 years ago, people in India were having a go at doing it on criminals who had had their noses chopped off. A common punishment at that time. Ouch! That's right. You realised it was possible to tidy up what was left of the criminal's face with the skin taken from another part of his body. Same principle that surgeons use today. Clever chaps. Disgusting detail. If you're nearly a teenager... You might already have some spots on your face. It's a common skin condition called acne. It includes whiteheads, blackheads and bumps that are filled with pus. How do they get there? Your skin is covered in tiny holes called pores and hair follicles, which hair grows out of. These contain an oil called sebum that moistens your hair and skin. Most of the time, these glands make the right amount of oil. But every now and again, especially during your teenage years, pores get clogged up with too much oil, dead skin cells and bacteria. And this can cause acne. And if you find you're getting niffy under your arms and in other hot and sweaty places, that's because smelly bacteria love to eat sweat. To keep spots and sweat under control, make sure you have a good wash twice a day, every day with soap and water. Right! Now to wash my new body to make sure he is smelling fresh as a daisy. And now this squeaky new skin is ready to go. So let's zap it together. Let's let the lightning loose. Brilliant. It's worked. My body has smooth, super smart skin. Next, we'll be popping in some eyes so that my body can look around. Hope you can join me and Nurse Nanabot then. Bye for now. You can find out more about the professor and his body at the Fun Kids website, funkidslive.com. Professor Hullock's Builds a Body is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Right, let's get to your questions then, where you send something sciencey, uh, something sciencey that you need solved. Uh, you leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. When you find the podcast there, there's a little comment box at the bottom. That's where you write it. Uh, give us five stars as well. It'll really help me see it and leave your name so I can say hello. Uh, this is from Imogen, who says, How does our voice work? And why does everyone's sound different? And they do all sound different. Your voice is pretty much as unique to you as your thumbprint is. 
as a dog's noses as a set of tiger stripes are. They're all completely different. Now, when you make a sound, it has to travel through air that surrounds your vocal cords. You've got two of these in your throat. Uh, there are bits of tissue uh, and they wobble around. And that's like when you pluck the strings of a guitar and it makes the air that's in your throat reverberate. It vibrates around and that's how you make a noise. Now, your voice is completely different to someone else's because there's so many different things that get involved with making that sound come out. Uh, vocal cords are different length. That might make a different pitch, whether you're high or whether you're low. Uh, and then that sound, it bounces around your throat around your head as well, comes out of your mouth, out of your nose, and the different space, the different air that it hits, because your face is completely different to someone else's. That's why all voices sound different, Imogen. Thank you for that. This one is from Ella, who wants to know why we can't breathe underwater. Really, it's quite simple. It's because our lungs aren't designed for water. We need oxygen in your lungs. There are these tiny, tiny loads of these tiny little sacs that take the oxygen in, they take the air in, sorry, and then they move the oxygen across the wall of the sacs so it gets in the blood. That's how you keep alive. Uh, now, they don't have the space in those sacs, enough surface area, to get oxygen from the water. And what our lungs are made out of as well has been adapted to, to handle air, not liquid like that. Now, fish, they have gills, don't they? And that helps them filter the water to get the oxygen they need from it. It's a completely different form of breathing. But then fish can't really survive outside of the water because their gills have adapted. Uh, they haven't adapted for air. So it's kind of the reverse of us. Uh, and lastly, this is from Liv in Cambridge. More about fish. She wants to know, do fish sleep? Uh, th yes, they do sleep. Yeah, most animals sleep. They need to rest. They need to recharge just like we do. Now, when they sleep, they kind of stop moving around. They, they bob near the bottom or the top of the water. Now, they don't have eyelids, so they don't close their eyes. They don't need it because they don't have dust that gets into their eyes like we do on land. Uh, now, some fish, they need to move about so they can breathe. So if they fall asleep, they stop moving. They stop breathing. Uh, animals like dolphins have this, and it means they need to keep moving so they sleep one half of their brain at a time, so the other half can keep them going about, keep them breathing, and keep them alive. If you've got a question that you want answered next week on this show, uh, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, we've got a proper space superhero on the show. Uh, he's been with us before. Uh, he's actually been up there astronaut Tim P. Come on. I mean, he spent six months on board the International Space Station, traveled around the world, what, 3,000 times, clocking up millions of miles as he did it. And he's taken everything that he learned all about the universe and he's stuck it in a book. It's called Swarm Rising. It's all about Danny and Jamila and the aliens who are out to get them. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for, for being there. How are you? Hello, Dan. Great. Thanks. Great to be on Fun Kids. Now, what do you, I don't want to start this on a downer, Tim, but I'm just wondering, what do you miss most about being in space? I mean, we've been trapped inside for about a year, so <laughs> there might be some similarities there, but what do you miss most? Uh, I think that the two main things that um, I miss, I think most astronauts miss, is the view of Earth, because there's nowhere else like it, uh, that you can get this incredible view of our planet, and and also the feeling of weightlessness, which is really, really cool. It's very unique. It's lots of fun. It just makes everything you do slightly different. So I think those two things are brilliant, and, and I miss them a lot. Talking about the view, Tim, I've heard some astronauts say that it, it makes you 
think about your life a lot differently and about your place in the world. What did you find when you were up there, looking down on this tiny marble of a planet that you were hovering miles above? It does. You can't help about thinking about things differently. I mean, every day on Earth, we go about our daily lives and we see nature around us, greenery, you know, uh, urban areas. We look up, we see a blue sky or a cloudy sky. We don't actually appreciate that we are on a rocky planet orbiting around a sun. You know, that's not the first thing you think of when you step outside your door. Uh, But from space, it is all you see. It's like, oh my goodness, mate, that's just a black abyss of the universe. And there's that rocky planet. Um, and, you know, you just see this completely different perspective. Uh, and so that's the most amazing thing is it just gives you that fresh appreciation of where we are in the solar system. One of the things I know I love, and I know a lot of listeners love, is having a bit of free time in the day. I'm wondering about you being up on the International Space Station. How much time did you just have to just chill and do what you want? Or were you pretty busy right the way through? Constant experiments, constant spacewalks. How busy were you, Tim? It is it is busy. We're there to work hard. Um, you have to kind of snatch those moments when you can. So if you've been scheduled, you know, 20 minutes to do something, you manage to do it in 15 minutes, you've just bought yourself a quick five minutes to go to the cupola, you know, take some photographs, have a look of Earth. Uh, but there's constantly things to do. At the weekends, we get a bit more time to ourselves. We do some education programs. We clean the space station. We can call friends and family. But Monday through Friday, it's pretty much flat out. How long did it take you to get used to the fact that you were sleeping inside a chunk of metal that was hovering through space? I think, you know, you never really get used to it. Um, but I, I, I started getting good night's sleep after about two weeks. It takes your body about two weeks to be able to fall asleep in weightlessness because it's really unusual when you don't put your head on a pillow or lie down. It's a really weird uh, way to sleep. And so your body doesn't like it. But once you get used to it, you have a great night's sleep and you wake up after just six hours. That's plenty of rest. It's such good quality. But you never really get used to the fact that you're floating in a space station. How do you get comfy if you're not lying down, if you've got nothing to put your head on? What You just float? Like You just don't need it. You just float. I mean, in fact, I kind of put my hands, my arms inside the sleeping bag and zip them up so that they were kind of across my chest. Because if you don't secure your arms in some way, they'll just float around and maybe knock you in the head and wake yourself up in the middle of the night. So it, it feels more secure just by strapping yourself into a sleeping bag. Now, the last time we spoke and you came on the show, you told me that there were plans to make the moon a service station en route to Mars. And... I don't think I've, there's no one I've met that I haven't mentioned that to. Uh, how are we getting on with that, with that quest, Tim? We're doing a pretty good job. In fact, this year, later this year, we hope to launch SLS, which is the huge rocket. This is larger than the Saturn V that took the Apollo cruise to the moon. So it's going to have its maiden voyage this year. Um, and then the next mission, the second mission, will be carrying crew, four crew members uh, around the moon uh, and then bring them back. And then the third mission, which is scheduled for 2024, maybe 2025, uh, is going to have the surface landing. So two astronauts going down to the surface once again, which is going to be fantastic. So if we get to go back to the moon, is your hand first up? You're the one that wants to be there. Is that doable? Uh, my hand is certainly firmly up up there. I know there's fierce competition from my other European classmates, but my hand is firmly up there. We'll see what happens. Uh, now, you've got a new book out. Uh, it's a fiction book. It's called Swarm Rising. What was it about your trip in space 
and everything that you know about the universe that inspired you to write a story? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of stories about aliens. There's been a lot of movies about aliens. But when you really think seriously about where are they and how might they get here, one thing I realized when I was out in space is just the vastness of the universe. There is likely to be civilized, intelligent life all over the universe. Will it ever get here, though, if we can't travel faster than the speed of light? And then I thought, well, what if it can travel at the speed of light? Why can't intelligence be a radio signal traveling to us as digital information? And, you know, these days we play simulation games, computers, artificial intelligence is becoming all around us. Uh, it's possibly where humanity is going. So I thought, yeah, let's have some aliens arrive on planet Earth, but they arrive in a radio signal as digital intelligence. And then the story kind of erupts from there. So I've had a lot of fun writing it with Steve Cole, who is a brilliant children's author. He's worked on Doctor Who and he's got some great ideas of his own as well. So we've had great fun. Now, uh, Tim, I've got some questions from listeners, if that's okay. Stuff that they'd like to ask an astronaut. Can I fire some at you? Of course. Let's fire away. Uh, this is from Tia, who is nine, uh, who wants to know, how much do you have to actually do to get back down to Earth? When you sit in that module at the end, is it just a case of aiming and going forward? How, how much say do you have over where you land? Well, do you know what? Coming back to Earth, we have a lot more say and we have a lot more to do. It's launching into space that we don't have a huge amount to do. I mean, literally, the rocket goes off and if everything goes well, we don't touch anything until the engines cut out and we're hopefully safely in space. But coming back down, there's a lot to do. We have to break, we have to slow down and that burn, that engine burn has to be really spot on accurate. So starting the engine, stopping the engine, making sure that we break uh, enough to come into Earth's atmosphere. Not too much, we'll come in too steep, not too little or else we'll go back out into space again. And then the spacecraft has to separate into three parts, then the parachutes have to open successfully, seats have to jockey their position around. There's a lot going on with re-entry. It's a, it's a brilliant roller coaster ride but we've got a lot to do. Uh, this one is from Louise, who is eight years old. Thank you, Louise. Why do astronauts get weaker when they're up in space? Well, the reason we get weaker is because our body is doing a brilliant, brilliant job of trying to adapt to a new environment. It says, hey, I'm just not working hard. I don't need these bones. I don't need these muscles because of weightlessness. And so our body tries to adapt. And that's why we get weaker. Um, so we have to try and stop that from happening because we're going to come back to a gravity environment. Uh, but if we left our body and did nothing at all, it would turn itself into the perfect human form for weightlessness. It's pretty incredible. And then Neve follows up on that. She's also eight. She says, when you get back down on Earth again, how long does it take you to adjust so you can walk normally, so you can use your muscles again in stronger gravity? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it varies because... It takes just a couple of days before we feel confident walking again. We've got our balance okay. You know, we feel all right. Um, but then you go to pick things up and you realize that your core strength is just not quite there because we, it's very hard to exercise your stomach muscles and your lower back muscles. That takes probably about a month to really fully build those back up. And our bones actually take at least six months to recover, if not a year. So it's a gradual process. Uh, Luke, who is nine, says loads of people want to be an astronaut. Not many get the chance. 
what makes the lucky few stand out? I think the things that the space agencies are really looking for are people who are able to be team players that can communicate well, um, that can work in international teams, that don't mind traveling. All these little things that go to make up a national in terms, as well as all those skills that they've tested, like concentration and spatial awareness and memory retention, etc. But it comes down a lot of it to your personality and character and how you come across in interviews in the final stages um, because any one of you know a dozen people could do the job but they need to just pick three or four and so it's the small things uh, about your personality and character which is why I think it's so important when you're younger to get out get involved whether it's scouts whether it's cadets guides you know whatever it is that you want to do Duke of Edinburgh award schemes things that kind of build those interpersonal skills are so important for life uh, l- last question from a listener this is from Marley who's 10 and I love this it's it's all about coming back to earth uh, Marley says when when you go scuba diving, if you come up too quickly, you get a little bit ill. You get the bends. Does anything happen like that when you come back from space if it all happens too quickly? Uh, that's a brilliant, brilliant question. Um, you know what? It doesn't happen when we come back from space because if everything goes well, then our pressure doesn't change. The pressure on the space station is one atmosphere, same as on Earth. Inside the capsule, it's one atmosphere. So no pressure change. The place where we have to be really careful is coming inside from a spacewalk because when we do a spacewalk, we go to a really low pressure inside our suits so that we can bend our arms or we can work outside in the vacuum of space. And that's very much like diving so when you come back in from that really low pressure environment where nitrogen can start to even you know start to form bubbles in our blood we have to be really really careful when we do spacewalks going into them and coming back out of them Uh, lastly and this is just me because there's a lot of talk about billionaires going into space at the moment jeff bezos elon musk sir richard branson Uh, as someone that's been there yourself that's part of the European Space Agency, hopefully going back to the moon at some point. How do you feel about about these people spending loads of their own money to get up to space? Well, I think it's it's brilliant what's happening because, you know, these commercial companies are going to be critical to our our exploration of the moon to Mars and beyond. Uh, And it's a case of using other people's resources. So SpaceX, for example, are not only are they flying crew to the space station right now and providing cargo, they're going to be providing a a lander system, a lunar lander system, and their their large rocket is going to be carrying elements of the exploration program, as might Blue Origin. So these companies, you know, that participating in this program are going to make deep space exploration possible. So I think what they're doing is, is fantastic. And also, it is giving more you know, opportunity for more people to get into space. And at the moment, whilst that's people who've got lots of money, you know, in the early days of flying, it was only people who had lots of money that could afford to fly across the Atlantic. Whereas now, you know, there's many, many people who could afford a ticket to a, for a holiday in Florida, for example. So who knows? In the future, many, many more people might be able to afford a ticket to space amazing well tim thanks for joining us the brand new book is swarm rising um and it's fantastic tim thank you so much for coming on the show thanks very much great talking to you now for this week's dangerous dan we're headed to the home of dangerous deadly things it seems we're there every other week we're going down under to australia now in the uk which is where i live uh, we have stinging nettles out in the back garden, in the woods, maybe where you are, you've got some too. In Australia, the nettles are in overdrive. 
you will find the Australian stinging tree in the northeast of the country. Clumps of the bush grow out in the wild. Uh, they can get quite tall as well, up to three metres. They've got wide leaves, which and growing up the stem and all around the leaves are thin, fuzzy barbs, and these cause the issue. Uh, go on then, what do you reckon the Australian stinging tree does? Well done. 50 points for Hufflepuff. It stings you horrendously. Even a split-second brush against the fuzz causes pain that lasts for a week. They say it feels like your arm is on fire at first and then it ends up throbbing like you've slammed it in a car door. And this goes on and on and on. It can last for ages. It still hurts. It drives people and unlucky animals around the bend. Now, the Australian stinging tree isn't just any tree that stings. It's one of the worst in the world. We're looking into the gadgets right now with our guru on the show. This is Techno Mum. Techno Mum, engineering explorers. Mmm, I love chocolate. Perhaps the best job in the world might be someone who gets to invent delicious new snacks and sweets. Or maybe actually testing them would be the best job. Wow, you've polished off the lot. I thought you were going to save a couple for me. So, here's what I've been thinking, Mum. If engineers make stuff and come up with inventions, is there an engineering job where you can invent new types of chocolate? You mean like Willy Wonka? I know. Pretty unlikely. He's just a character in a book. Yay, not so fast. Some engineers do invent new foods and drinks, and they don't even need Oompa Loompas to help. Ha ha, very funny, Mum. No, no, I'm serious. They're chemical engineers. Chemical engineers? Well, think about it. Everything's made of chemicals. And if you know how to change and combine chemicals, you can make all sorts of new substances. Sounds like being a wizard. Alchemy. It's not magic, but it's very cool. Chemical engineers design and develop all sorts of products from food and drink to toiletries and medicines. If a chemical engineer works for a food company, they might be making new flavours. Or if they work for a company that makes toiletries or cleaning products, perhaps they'll be making a biodegradable type of soap that causes less harm to the environment. In fact, the number of jobs that chemical engineers do is almost as varied as the amount of chemicals we use. New medicines, new types of plastics, perhaps from recycled bottles, high-tech materials to help make cars, planes and even rockets lighter and faster. Whilst a lot of chemical engineers' work is in laboratories, some will work with computers and IT to analyse the results of experiments. Check out this video. It shows some really exciting stuff that's being done by a chemical engineer in Africa. This is Asqua Hilonga. He's a chemical engineer from Tanzania. In some parts of his country, it's hard to find clean water to drink, and so frequently people become ill and even die. He invented a water filter which uses sand and nanotechnology to filter impurities out. Anything from copper and fluoride to bacteria, viruses and pesticides. That's brilliant. I suppose knowing how different substances affect each other helped him to figure out what to put in his filter. That's right. And it's a much cheaper way to clean water thoroughly so more people can use it. Cool job. And a bit more important than making new chocolates, I suppose. There are loads of cool jobs for engineers. Almost as many jobs as there are inventions. And hey, there's always room for chocolate. Couldn't agree more. Or there would be room for chocolate if you'd left me some. Engineering Explorers, created with support from the Institution of Engineering and Technology to celebrate the year of engineering. Find out more at funkislive.com slash technomum. Right, let's do this week's Science in the News. 
amateur astronauts have splashed back down to Earth after three days in space. The Inspiration4 crew took off in a SpaceX capsule in Florida last week. They orbited the Earth and then they landed in the Atlantic Ocean, quite near where they took off from. I mean, look at that planning. What direction's up there? Now, four parachutes deployed and slowed the capsule's descent and that set a pattern for more space tourism. We could see that soon. Uh, also, COVID therapy from llamas has shown promise in early tests. Scientists take nanobodies that the llamas make naturally to fight the infection. They give it to humans uh, and they can do it through squirting it up the nose. And it's been really helpful in treating coronavirus, apparently. So we might see more of that. And finally this week, the UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, says the world is at a turning point uh, in climate change. He said four things need to change. Coal, cars, cash and trees. And humans must take responsibility for the damage that we've caused to the planet over the years. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you've got something sciencey that you want answered on the show, maybe next week, maybe it's something about Australia that you're wondering about, we're always going there, uh, leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. Now, while you're on Apple Podcasts, it's one of the best places that you can hear loads of podcasts that we make, funnily enough. You can get them as well on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com.